I V M. Hello, hello. We're Team Splainer. Welcome to an all-new episode of Press Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Splainer's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories. We've got a one-month free trial for you in the show notes, so don't forget to take us for a free spin. But for now, just sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Bagda, your host for the day, and I have with me Prafula and Sara. As always, we have three segments for you. In our first segment, we're looking at the biggest story of the week: the arrest of Mohammad Zubair, who is the co-founder of fact-checking website Alt News. For the food for thought segment, we're talking about the accessibility and safety of abortions in India in context of the rollback of abortion rights in the US. And then in our final segment, we'll be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items. Okay, let's get on with our big story. On Monday evening, Alt News co-founder and a vocal critic of the Hindutva right, Muhammad Zubair, was arrested by the Delhi police for a tweet from 2018. Let's start with who Zubair is. His claim to fame is basically his liberal-leaning fact-checking website Alt News and his Twitter account, which has about 600,000 followers, where he often shares clips highlighting right-wing violence and abuse of minorities. He was most recently in the news himself for a clip that he had shared of the then BJP spokesperson Nupur Sharma. where she made hateful comments about prophet muhammad and islam the clip he shared went viral and nupur sharma blamed him for creating a fake narrative and for the death threats she allegedly received after the clip went viral this is the same clip that caused a diplomatic furor against india in the middle east fir's were filed against him for tweets in the same thread that called hindu religious leaders hate mongers and he was booked for promoting enmity and hurting religious feelings these are the newer fir's according to zubair there are some five or six other cases against him too one of the older cases is from 2020 when someone abused him on twitter and so zubair posted a profile picture of this abuser which also had a picture of this abuser's granddaughter and where the child's face was blurred out in response the national commission for protection of child rights which is the ncpcr filed a complaint against zubair for threatening and torturing this child for this picture so where he took the efforts to blur out her face much unlike a lot of mainstream media Yes. Nice. Okay. I am. But anyways, it's subjudice. Case, we have no comments. No, we have no comments. So yeah. the Delhi police called him for questioning in that case, and when he showed up, he was arrested in this new FIR filed against him for a 2018 tweet in which he posted a screenshot of a scene from a 1983 movie called "Kisi Se Na Kehna." He posted the screenshot with this caption: "Before 2014, honeymoon hotel. After 2014, Hanuman hotel. Hashtag Sanskari hotel." ज्यादा मत हंसो सो नाउ हाउ वॉज दिस ट्वीट डिस्कवर्ड इज ट्वेंटी एटीन का ट्वीट ना सम ट्विटर यूजर हुज अकाउंट बाय द वे वॉज क्रिएटेड इन ट्वेंटी ट्वेंटी वन रीट्वीटेड दिस asking the police to take action against him for hurting hindu religious feelings oh you know That's the person who who tweeted it out that account doesn't exist anymore now on twitter oh wow even better yeah oh how oh, interesting wonderful. is that Yeah, it was an anonymous account. Yeah, yeah, and that also he has deleted. Like, bro, anonymous. Tha, he could have stayed on. So that's all about the case. In the latest update, his bail was rejected, and on Tuesday, the court extended police custody for four more days. And there are lots of questions about this case. Why was he tricked into arrest? Can he be tricked into arrest? Is it legal? How come no other users who shared the image 
were arrested. How come Republic TV got a copy of Zubair's remand order before Zubair's lawyer got <laughs> the remand order, etc., etc., which are all valid questions, but too many to go into for one episode. So let's talk about what it really comes down to, and that is the status of freedom of speech and especially that of press in India. Hmm. So talking about press, did you guys see the Indian Express front page recently? Yes. For those who haven't, there was a report about Zubair's arrest, and it was placed right next to a headline that said India is joining the Group of Seven. to protect the freedom of speech both on and offline really clever placement if you ask me whoever is responsible for that you know props but it is also ironic considering the fact that india recently ranked 150 out of 180 countries on the reporters without borders annual press freedom index this index if for anybody wondering looks at how governments treat the freedom of expression of journalists news organizations even internet users like you and i for uh, and you know obviously in terms of how it deals with critical voices etc and our government is always unhappy with our rankings but decides that these indices for some reason exist to defame india last year the inb minister called the methods that the rsf used to calculate these rankings not transparent and questionable So I think it was last Sunday that Twitter came public with the fact that it said the Indian government had asked it to delete tweets that were about another press freedom rating from 2021 that came from Freedom House. Okay. So you know I think since Zubair's arrest which kind of overlapped with the release of these rankings it really does drive home the point about the state of press freedoms in this country i mean even if anurag thakur disagrees but he's also known for other speech himself so let's <laughs> i don't know i just had to mention it there but even in the case of zubair in this example he was summoned for a particular case like pakka said and then was slapped with completely different allegations his lawyer has called these allegations factually wrong number 1 and number 2 coherent malicious targeting so as much as this arrest is infuriating Sadly it isn't a one off there has been systematic crackdowns on media persons time and again previous governments have done it think back to like the emergency but in recent times modi administration has really been coming down very heavy handed on uh, critical voices in over the last year only uh, there's been over a dozen reporters who were detained for anything from espionage to seditious speech to money laundering and in 2020 at least 67 journalists were detained across the country now these arrests and uh, detentions also include the reporters who covered hatras and also the kashmirwala's editor fahad shah comes to mind and shah was arrested what at least three different times right on different mm. charges he would be let out on bail yeah the moment he got out oh my god it was like ridiculous one after the other Though this, like again, obviously Fahad Shah's case was very, very consistent. That's the thing; they just file so many FIRs, so they have a little buffet of FIRs. Like, oh, we can't arrest you for this; we will arrest you for this, and mm-hmm. that's exactly what they did with Zubair as well. If we actually look at it, exactly. frivolous or not, it was a buffet of FIRs. Yeah, to keep them in and out of either jail, like Shah, or in and out of police stations constantly, and you know, it's mental harassment at some point. But if we think about these cases, or even the case of kashmir as a whole where several journalists have been detained since august 
it really begs the question just who exactly is being targeted you know okay so i am back on the train of we need to call this out for what it is okay but to set some context like you asked who is actually being targeted if you haven't already noticed more often than not mainstream and as it happens to be journalists who write and report in english usually face like threat of fir summons and countless court hearings but aren't necessarily thrown into jail or even detained really i mean think rajdeep sardesai vinod dua or even the rana you over the last year i think the most sensational and headline making journalist arrests i can think of are fahad shah like prafulla pointed out siddiqui kapan who from kerala has been in jail since october 2020 because he was reporting on the gruesome hatras rape and murder or see a mandeep punya who was arrested during the farmer protest now punya while he does report for the caravan which i suppose can be considered mainstream at a stretch but he was after all a freelance journalist at best when it comes to like mainstream journalists i can think of two young hw news reporters who were detained while reporting about communal violence in tripura in november last year and all of this actually just brings me to what these observations very clearly point out a lot of the burden of the lack of press freedom in india is unfairly borne by independent journalists who hmm. often do not have the backing of any organization like you'd see even like in broadcast news channels a lot of uh, reporters who report in especially smaller towns are sidelined as not even journalists they're called stringers for some reason and other than that also these independent journalists that i'm talking about are journalists who have managed to like build ardent readership and following with that also comes the risk that the consequences of all the work that they do is single handedly on their shoulders so like beyond the stringers these are journalists i'm talking about are those who have managed to build an ardent readership for themselves and a following because they use social media as their platform but what comes with the freedom of using platforms like that is the consequences of their works are born single handedly by them so a dharkan based journalist who is an independent journalist named anand datta he actually points out when you're not affiliated with a media organization there's no id card that can be produced to establish your credentials or prove who you are or what you say is actually journalism or reporting so people just go it's convenient to think it's malicious and then attack you Mm. so it's double the problem right like the risk of reporting itself is a huge issue and then the added threat of no support from any organization or group when faced with dire consequences now the second bit that i am fully aware faces the risk of being branded a hot take but for what it's worth i do believe it's a question worth pondering on so we clearly know that the mainstream journalists so to say are usually only are never put into jail the threatened so to say but not thrown into jail so why was zubair singled out his arrest is over a tweet of a still from a movie anyone who sees it even those who got offended does know that it is satyo and it was in 2018 yet the man is being arrested now on the basis of a complaint from an anonymous account that sprung up in 2021 and until the arrest it had a grand total of one tweet is this an independent media problem or is this simply his muslim identity that makes him easier to single him out in the current political climate given his high profile in the national media he will likely be released sooner than later and i sure hope so as well but i think a clear message has been sent across to the country to every independent news outlet and 
more so to every vocal Muslim. You know, you will be put into line. And that's where my concern actually lies. You know, I don't think this is a hot take at all. It's not. So uh, when I've been talking about, I strongly believe in it, but it has been branded a hot take on across social media. No one seems to be reporting on this angle. Even your op-eds don't actually talk about it. Yeah, it's all about press freedom and everybody's like completely forgotten that. Hmm. I mean, the reason is clearly because he's Muslim. Yeah. Great time to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) We come to the end of this first segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IVM Podcasts Network. Hello and welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcasts Network. We're Team Splainer and in today's Food for Thought, we're talking about abortion rights. Last weekend, the US Supreme Court erased the constitutional right to abortion and overturned a 49-year-old precedent set by landmark 1973 case of Roe v. Wade. Now, there are some nuances to whether abortion is legal or not in the US anymore. Different states have different laws legalizing or prohibiting abortion. But what is settled is that abortion is surely harder to access in the US now. And things may get Mm. way worse. We have all these details that I'm speaking about in this planer we published on Monday morning. So I'm going to suggest you check that out. The link is in the show notes. But sitting in India, we've been watching a lot of self-congratulatory posts on social media saying, oh, look at us, we're so much better off. And there are also many misconceived ones, such as the one that we live in a country where women enjoy the right to abortion, which is Hmm. not correct. So let's look at the status of abortion in India, starting out with the law. Abortion is regulated under the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act, which allows abortion in two circumstances. One, where it concerns the woman's health, that is, the continuation of pregnancy would either be a risk to the life of the pregnant woman, or it would cause grave injury to her physical or mental health. And second circumstance in which abortion is allowed is when there is a fetal abnormality, such as that if the child was born, it would suffer from some physical or mental abnormality, such as severe cardiac problems, congenital disorders, or brain anomalies. In both circumstances, it is the doctor's opinion that matters, and not the woman's choice. I mean, yes, the woman has to opt for it. Non-consensual abortion is a crime carrying prison time up to 10 years, but it's not really her choice, you know. It's Mm -hmm. only if the doctor decides, yes, we need to abort. So you see how it's still dependent on the doctor's say rather than the choice of the woman. And that's the one major difference that sticks out between the discourse in the US and in India. But also, thanks to the most recent amendment, abortion is legally allowed until 20 weeks with the opinion of one doctor, between 20 and 24 weeks of gestation with the opinion of two doctors for special categories of women, that is including survivors of rape, victims of incest and other vulnerable women like um, differently abled women and minors. And then there's also the pill, which is different from the morning after pill, which can be used up to seven weeks, which is a scheduled H drug and also needs a doctor's prescription. And um, this is the most progressive bit. The act allowed for married women to opt for abortion in the case, in case their contraceptive they use failed, as the anguish caused by such pregnancy may be presumed to constitute a grave injury to the mental health of the woman. Now, Mm. this used to be married women. Now it's open to unmarried women too because the act lists women and her partner as opposed to what it used to list, that is women and her husband. But now that's all about the law. Is the enforcement as easy and accessible as the law seems? Seems pretty progressive to me, other than the non-inclusion of trans persons. Uh, You know, I mean, before I get to that, 
I think it's important that we underline certain issues. Like you said, Vagda, induced miscarriage is a crime under the IPC. But and because of that, the MTP protects doctors when they have to terminate the pregnancy. Second, specific terminations require multiple doctors plus a medical board to allow this abortion. But then if they don't, you have to then approach the courts. The problem with this is moral policing runs deep even amongst medical professionals, right? So you could go to a doctor and they could still potentially disallow an abortion even if you have a so-called valid reason that is outlined in the law. But the thing is, for some women, it can even getting up to the point of going to a doctor can be so difficult because first, there's a huge shortage of doctors in the country and the distribution is skewed towards urban areas and it widens even more when it comes to gynecologists. Data from 2019-2020 showed that there was about a 70% shortage in semi-urban and rural uh, regions. Because of this, setting up a medical board obviously is made more difficult because the board also needs about three members to actually constitute as a board. One of the articles that I read said that there is only one such board across Delhi and that is in Ames. So imagine how far someone may have to travel to access a board if they live outside a metro city. And I think adding to all of that again is the fact that awareness limits accessibility. Because even if you don't think abortion is wrong and you need an abortion, some women may perceive it as a crime in the sense that it is not legally allowed. And this will then lead to unsafe attempts because you think no doctor will sign off on you trying to terminate a pregnancy. And similar to that, I found this very interesting that in Tamil Nadu, it is thought that stalking and selling the morning after pill is illegal. Uh, Not an abortion pill, but the morning after pill. It isn't, but there have been in uh, restrictions apparently set by state officials that women cannot now get an eye pill, for example, in a pharmacy easily at all. In one case that I was reading, someone had to ask a friend who was traveling out of state to get them an eye pill. So it's, again, that places un- yet another roadblock in, you know, contraception or even safe sexual practice. Uh, the fact also is that the onus of, you know, looking at how viable a pregnancy is, do you want to keep the, your pregnancy, um, the awareness, everything is on the women. We do have care facilities for abortion and for maternal uh, and prenatal health, but those are very limited. And we don't have anything as extensive as, say, a planned parenthood in the US, which has facilities across the country. And they do, from what I understand, Planned Parenthood does, you know, procedures or checkups at lower costs, I think, from what I understand. And also, while we're talking about access, this quote from a TOI article is worth noting because it stood out to me so starkly. It says, when women were asked if they were allowed to step out alone, only 52% said they go to a health facility unaccompanied. Just 51% said that they had access to money they could decide how to use. And 20% said they cannot make decisions about their own health by themselves. So, I mean, that is all very stark and very, I mean, even it's stark for us also because we're sitting in places of privilege, right? But I think it's all also compounded by the fact that there is a very obvious overlap in the law that leads to a significant amount of uncertainty when it comes to certain aspects or certain sections of women. Hmm. Yeah, and 
I think I was more like all of this aside, I was also shocked and equal part shocked, equal part fascinated at sure, whatever, however you want to put it, about this huge gray area that we have with the legal framework when it comes to abortion in India. And not a lot of people actually know this. So like we've pointed out, there are very few eligible medical practitioners as compared to the population of the country. So that's woefully inadequate in any way. And beyond all this, they also face issues thanks to the obstacles that come with an overlap between the MTP Act, which is what governs abortion, like we've heard, and the mandates of the POCSO, which is the Protection of Children from Sexual Offenses Act, and the PCP-NDT, which is called the Preconception and Prenatal Diagnostic Techniques Act, which is what essentially criminalizes sex determination. Now I'll explain how this plays out. So PCP-NDT was essentially passed in 1994, so after MTP, to ensure abortions aren't carried out at the whims and fancies of a woman or a couple. Basically to say, this is to avoid female feticide. And it also banned prenatal testing for gender. So those are just the laws. Now that we know that, here's where things actually get tricky. First with POXO, section 19 of the act says, any person aware of a minor engaging in sex has to report the matter to local police, even if it was a consensual act, as the law pegs the age of consent at 18 years. So if a minor comes to you seeking abortion, despite the progressive amendments to MTP, which now include minors, your doctor is legally required to report the case to law enforcement. And more often than not, doctors just don't want to get involved with the police, which also means minors don't reach out to them for safe abortions. Yeah, I'm sure minors also don't want to be a part of I mean, if they had consensual sex, they don't want to go to the police for this. It's it's a brief a breach of privacy, right? And in its most basic form, right? Exactly. And FII, the reason why minors were included in the last amendment was because it was found that a large number of them were the cross-section of people who were approaching courts for permission to terminate pregnancies beyond 20 weeks. So it's not like the minors are magically going to stop having sex because you decide to have convoluted laws. Mm. You're just going to mm. force them into unsafe abortions. Now, when it comes to PCP entity, like I said, it criminalizes sex-selective abortion. Sounds good. I mean, it is a problem in the country. But even I didn't think this one through. And clearly, our lawmakers didn't either. How is one to actually track these offenses, if not by policing abortion data? Think about it. If a sex determination test shows up a male fetus and the parents decide to go ahead with the pregnancy, it is technically an offense thinking with the assumption that they wouldn't have done it if it was a female. But the crime will never be detected because the crime only tracks violations through abortions. So again, disclaimer, I'm not saying sex-selective abortions are not an issue in the country. Data shows that, most recent data shows that more than 2% of abortions in the country have been cases of female feticide. But it is also important to underline that at least 88% of all abortions in the country happen due to permissible reasons. Yet, 67% of all the abortions that happened have been unsafe. And that's what happens when you have convoluted laws. I'm not saying that, you know, sex-selective abortions are a symbol of bodily empowerment. But at the same time, it is important that 
people are given the right of choice and you don't muddle it up in law yeah i'm thinking like if the minor for example in this case wanted the police to be involved if they if they were abused wouldn't they head to the police on their own why does a doctor need to be involved your guess is as good yeah. as mine <laughs> yeah okay on that note we come to the end of this segment we'll be right back after a short break you're listening to press decode on the ivm podcasts network Welcome back to Press Decode on the IVM Podcasts Network. It's time for our final segment this week, Roast or Toast. Now, who wants to go in first? I have a least favorite item after so long. I'm almost nostalgic at this point. Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> Truly nostalgic. Anyway, keeping up with my alcohol theme from around, I think two weeks ago was when I was fangirling over Old Monk. This week, we found out that the hottest boozy trend in London is something, brace yourselves for it, called vegetable martinis. And no, this isn't your lowly bloody mary which I hate with a vengeance anyway. But the fancy tomatini is instead made with squeezed ripe tomatoes with vodka mixed with white balsamic vinegar and a pinch of salt and pepper. Other variations bizarrely also use avocados, mushrooms or homemade fermented grass. Seriously, they, this probably comes from how they tell you that you're supposed to eat your fruits and juice your vegetables she's definitely Sarah's just like giving food. me this bad <laughs> deserved honestly vaga thanks prafulla because i only had one question why are people hell bent on ruining the few good things we have left like anyway they are few and far in between that also now you want to make weird and horrible clearly vaga is for it you have you have old monk na Yeah, she can have her vegetable martinis and I don't know. Have fun, dude. <laughs> you can make your vegetable martini. I basically gave you the recipe. I will do that. I will try it. Don't tell this me week. how it goes. <laughs> okay, fine. Let's go to my fave item this week, which has something to do with eyebrows. Hyperallergic. Trace the history of eyebrows in art because everyone was looking for that this weekend, weren't they? <laughs> So all kinds of cultures have beauty different beauty standards right especially when there was no internet to have like one homogeneous global beauty culture you go back into art and you'll see all kinds of different beauty standards and cultures and things happening across the world now if bushy eyebrows are the in thing in the west soon enough subcontinent will hop onto that trend at this point which i am not at all complaining about because man threading my eyebrows was so painful I've fully given it up since this trend. Thank you very much. So, did you know that medieval Japanese, both men and women, would pluck out their eyebrows completely, drawing new ones an inch above? Then, in one of these styles called hikimayu, people would dip both thumbs in black pigment and then create mirroring prints far up on their forehead. Now, I know this <laughs> is about medieval art, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. but i'm proposing a hypothesis if someone wants to research on it that shinchan's eyebrows came from this hikimayu style yes right see what you mean you really thought long and hard about it yeah it's just it took me a second and i'm like hmm there is some validity anyway there are plenty more facts about eyebrows in art in this read including frida kahlo and her unibrow yes so check it out the link is in the show notes All right. So my um fave this week is just plain wacky on all accounts. So earlier in June, two Chinese men were arrested on the India Nepal border 
when questioned, they said that they had been living with a friend in Greater Noida. And that's where things get interesting. This friend was another Chinese man. I like what? how things got interesting because you've decided nobody wants to go live in Greater Noida willingly. <laughs> nobody, wants to, nobody wants to go live in Greater Noida, man. I had to go listen I had to go to college to Noida and I hated every bit of it if I had to step towards Greater Noida I made it everybody else's problem as well so <laughs> anyone who claims oh they're willingly living with friends in Greater Noida is enough of a red flag to make you want to exactly. investigate exactly that's what I'm getting make you want to yeah. investigate Nice. Clearly, that is why police were like, "Oh, we must now look up this friend in Greater Noida. Why would you live there willingly?" No, but this friend was uh, this Chinese man named Xu Fei, and he had falsified his documents and was living under an assumed Indian name. And over the course of this investigation, the police discovered that Xu had been running an illegal club for years, and it catered to mostly Chinese nationals. And what's more, this is a quote unquote luxury bar uh this was all this was like three stories big with 70 rooms in the middle of nowhere in some village in uttar pradesh i don't understand but my favorite bit about this is how shu reacted to being interrogated by the police this is from the hindu article uh, it says when the police uh, interrogated mr shu for 3 days he hardly showed any sign of exertion perched on a plastic chair in a police interrogation room in greater noida the police officers were amazed by his resilience even at night after hours of interrogation he was barely tired he took quick naps sitting on the chair but did not express any desire to lie down it seems he is well trained to sustain interrogations what was And happening the- at that bar <laughs> They, these guys had all these luxury items and apparently there was so many they had like fancy cars and all of that but also like they were having parties but they did not apply for a party license did not have a liquor license so very shady none of the reporting is very clear on what it, exactly it is but no, no, there's I a meant lot of like, that he's had uh, he's well trained to sustain interrogations yeah, i don't think that is bar. from the bar i think this man has previous history doing I don't know. There's so, so, so much to unpack no, here. I have a theory. Yes. He has all this experience because he lived in Greater Noida. <laughs> he can sustain anything that comes his way. There is peace and resilience. This is what comes when you live in that part of the NCR. You See, if he was being forced <laughs> to lie down, <laughs> if he was being forced Again. to live in Greater Noida, I would see sense in your theory. But he was willingly there. So Which this is man is already you or no? I'm I'm telling you, this man clearly has Who's had willingly doing this some experience to be like okay, we will some hardship he's had that he's like okay, Greater Noida me bar banayenge. <laughs> Greater so, Noida is the key to all your answers. <laughs> And that was our I show hope, this week. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on Press Decode. You can catch us every Thursday on the IBM Podcast Network. And guys, please remember. Don't let the news give you the blues. <laughs>